Welcome, everyone. I am Philip Primo. This is Semi Intellectual Musings. If you're new here, thank you for checking us out. If you are a return listener, thank you for sticking with us. As you know, this is the show on social science, humanities, and arts. And uh, this past summer can be described uh, one word weird. It's been a kind of like a roller coaster, up and down, and it's felt really awkward. Maybe you felt something like that too. Maybe not this summer, maybe some other time. Or maybe you had a great summer and you were able to put your feet in sand and go to the beach and get a tan. Well, I didn't get a tan. I was able to get a little bit of sun because of cutting grass and spreading 16 tons of crushed stone for my driveway and weeding and doing all that sorts of stuff. But most of it was spent inside on a laptop, straining my eyes, trying to get work done and dealing with the weirdness of what was this summer. If you've followed the show, you know that we haven't produced new episodes in quite some time. A podcast has a lot of moving parts from research to recording to just scheduling a time to do those things, to editing, and more editing, and more editing. And then there's HTML and ID3 tagging and all the technical background stuff that goes to a podcast. Sure, you can record audio and you can throw it up on the internet, but you don't have a podcast. You need show notes, you need social media, you need to be able to tell a story and tell it with passion, tell it with conviction, and be able to get from point A to point B. Some people might liken a podcast to cooking. You put all the ingredients together and you try to make a dish. Maybe the person who you're serving it to, your guest, enjoys it, and it's the best thing that they've ever had. Maybe they don't enjoy it. Like, I cannot stand red curry sauce. Maybe they hate it so much that they never eat at your house again, or they like it and they want to come back for more because you put thought and effort into the selection of ingredients, you cooked it with care, that sort of thing. I don't think that the metaphor of a podcast and cooking are is actually a very good one. I think a podcast is more like driving a car or riding a bike or maybe getting on a skateboard or a scooter. There are so many different moving parts. And if any one of them fails, you're not going anywhere. You crash. When you cook, you can overcook the meat You could forget that you left the potatoes on and they're slightly burnt. You can still serve your meal. You still have something to put on the plate. If you don't do the parts of a podcast, you're not going anywhere. Like a car, you need to be able to do many things simultaneously for it to happen. And when you have a weird summer, when things get awkward and life gets in the way, That prevents you from doing all those weird things. That's kind of what happened at the Simpod. And that's kind of why we had to take a little bit of an unannounced, unexpected hiatus. But I have found the car in the parking lot. I have dusted off the hood, give it a good shine, and we are back. But for today, enjoy a conversation between Matt Sanderson and Kristaps Andersons from the Eastern Border Podcast. This was one of the last interviews, one of the last discussions that Matt had while occupying a chair here on Semi-Intellectual Musings. And I hope that in the future, in the very near future, I'm going to be able to offer you fresh new conversations 
from Semi Intellectual Musings. There's some exciting things to come, so stay tuned for that. As always, you can check out Semi Intellectual Musings on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD. We are on Facebook at The Simpod. You can also email us, semi intellectual at gmail.com. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll talk soon. This episode of Semi-Intellectual Musings, Maddie continues to sit down with his Latvian comrade Kristaps Andresens of the Eastern Border Podcast. We pick up the conversation in the 1950s, seeing how sport was deliberately professionalized in Soviet Russia, which led immediately to dominance on the international stage. Mamu and the Dashing Latvian discuss the exportation of the system in the 60s and 70s, and how the West also mimicked aspects of the model in hopes of keeping up with those pesky ruskies. We wrap things up with the downfall of the sports system across the Soviet bloc, the selling of players during perestroika, and just a little bit on Putin and the doping scandal. Heck, we even got to talk about our favorite Latvian athletes. Hold on to your earbuds, comrades, and keep your coho on the ice. This is Soviet Sports Part 2, Dominance and Disintegration. <laughs> so what is like what is 42 I, that must be like must be like 110 or something like this it's something ridiculous i know that wow so uh mel just popped into maddie's corner there and uh uh said that it's 47 feels like it feels like 47 which is 116 degrees fahrenheit ouch i didn't even know that that was allowed to exist in canada well, that that's it, right? And like, I have this episode talking to a Latvian, and and believe it or not, Chris, like we recorded it back in I think the end of February. It's been sitting like in my docket for so long. Um, mm-hmm. So like the joke I made in the intro of that, like, oh, I keep Phil chained up in the recording studio editing, and I'll crack the window because the cold air will keep him awake. Uh, that's because it was like minus twenty degrees Celsius. But when I recorded that with uh, with Chris Dabbs. Oh, that's also horrible. So, Chris, we have an upcoming episode, you and I, uh, in the works that's been in the works for a while as well. Um, it's going to be Asterix, right? Yep. Yeah, and I'm going to be talking to your lovely wife, Kaylee. Yep, she loves the Asterix series. Um, I got her a couple of the omnibuses for her birthday. Omnibuses, eh? Is that like collected uh, volumes, the collected works of Asterix? Yep. Is it like leather bound and everything? Like looks really formal. No, it's not quite that awesome. Oh, that would be that would be great. Or uh, uh, maybe looking like a, a big hunk of meat or something like that. I'm going to be bringing that up. So your show is all about comics that have been turned into video game franchises and vice versa sometimes. And it's called the Play Comics Podcast. And Chris Osborne, you are one of the most supportive people out there on social media you listen to part one of this uh 
episode on Soviet sports and sent me like nice uh, Facebook message just being like, hey, I like the, the episode. So I figured have you on to give me more praise in this intro episode. Um, and I also thought it was ironic. Both your name is being Chris, spelt with a C-H, and Chris Stapps with a K-R-I-S-T-P-A-S. Chris Stapps. <laughs> um, so what uh what did you what did you like about the episode like what did, what were some of your takeaways well obviously the first thing i really liked about it was the canadian accent versus the latvian accent okay so you always you often give me a hard time about the canadian accent and i honestly it's like very cliche but i don't hear it right so what is the canadian accent can you do an impersonation of my accent i don't think i can do it eh <laughs> really oh okay <laughs> I don't think I could do it, eh? How are you doing? No, that was horrible. <laughs> no, I can't do it. I mean, it's really close to ours anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see it. And I, I don't detect any sort of Southern accent in you. So it's interesting. But Chris Stapps, you can definitely tell he's uh, he's not from Canada or America. He's definitely from Latvia. Um, but I thought his Russian accent was really good. Like, did you notice when he'd fall into a Russian accent versus his Latvian accent? Yeah, and I mean, that makes perfect sense with them being so close to each other. Yeah, and I love, um thing I really like about his show, Eastern Borders, uh, I, I did that all through the episode, put an S on the end, is actually Eastern Border Podcast. Um, the thing I love about Chris Stapp's show is that he's really funny and very satirical throughout, um, but the political analysis is very cutting and deep and thoughtful so i love the way he balances like humor and i tried to make that point in the episode uh that canada being so close to america which is a superpower and latvia being close to russia which is a superpower um we have to be funny because we're small and it's kind of like a defense mechanism i mean if you don't we're just going to come up there and take you over i'm surprised we exactly. haven't done it already Exactly. Did you, uh, I also mentioned like we, we like to head fake the Americans. So I think that's uh, something the Latvians and Canadian experience can share there. Uh, that and our love of beer as well. And uh, hockey. And uh, I also really like luge and uh, the sledding events at the Olympics. But uh, what about the main hunk? Um, the history of the Soviet sports um, system and also the Soviet Union, I guess. I mean, I always knew that there was kind of a grooming people for sports thing. I didn't realize how widespread it was. I was just kind of assuming it was like South American grooming people to be soccer players kind of deal where, mm -hmm. oh, you showed some promise with it and they bring you in. I didn't mm -hmm. realize it was like every single person and basically every single aspect of their life and then pulling people who had the ability showing from there yeah and it was very um omnipresent it is a word i didn't actually use in the first half at all but i was thinking about it before we hit record today um sports was omnipresent but that sport in the soviet union's context was so ideological so the ideology is omnipresent it was just in that way channeled through sport um, but it was everywhere i imagine being in the soviet union uh, in the 30s with just the posters around and hearing speeches and on loudspeakers. It's just, it's very Orwellian, right? So you can see in like 1984, he's writing about that sort of omnipresent state ideology that is compulsory. And that was what I thought was very interesting um, that Chris kept reiterating was that you had no choice. This was compulsory. Um, it wasn't for fun. And it's very interesting to think compared to our 
view of sports because sports is supposed to be a leisure activity in the West. And compared to the Soviet Union, it doesn't seem like they're having too much fun. And as Chris says, they're too busy eating some nice cake, right? Yep. And I kind of figured, you know, especially when you get into post-World War II, Cold War stuff, mm. that there would be an issue with defections and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I didn't realize that same kind of treatment would stretch out into like, oh, no, you got a silver medal. Let's possibly take out your family. Yeah, it was. Um, that's why when you would see even up into the 70s, uh, the footage of the Olympics, um, the f- look on the athletes faces is deadly serious. And we're like, wow, they take sports very seriously. Like, we had a very naive conception of what the consequences were at that time. After the fall of the um, the Iron Curtain, uh, that's when a lot of the records came out and a lot of the stories came out. Um, and you're hinting at part two, which, thank you, Chris. Um, it's uh, We're going to be, after this, jump into uh, Joseph Stalin, his cult of personality in the 1950s. And that's when... The system became professionalized. So in the 30s, they would recruit children and send them away to these schools. Um, But in the 50s, they took that up to the next level. And this was the aspect of the system that was um, exported around the Eastern Bloc. And then later in the 70s and 80s, um, the West started taking up components of it. And that's what I found very interesting about the paper I wrote. And I hope everybody has that as their main takeaway coming coming up well it sounds like i really hope you still have a copy of that paper so i can take a look at it (laughs) you know what i only have like the first quarter of it and it just got lost like i wrote it like 10 years ago so it was uh, really a chance for me just to kind of resurrect um a bunch of ideas um, in a paper that I thought was really interesting at the time, but because of the sort of demands of university and like just timelines, and I was only an undergrad, um, I couldn't really do much more with it than just hand it in. And um, I think I got a pretty good grade on it. But uh, anyway, so I'm looking forward to seeing what everybody else has to think about part two. And Chris, you as well, I want your feedback. So mention again the name of your show and how everybody can find you. My show is Play Comics. You could find it over at playcomics.com or playcomicscast on Twitter. Awesome. Well, nice and brief. Um, and I should note before I let everybody go, I missed a few citations, including the video that I mentioned in part one. So those will be included in uh, the show notes of part two here. So um, you are listening to, honestly, a song that I can't really pronounce the name of. It's from Ocean Path, and they are awesome. So rather than butchering it here, Um, Chris will correct my pronunciation when we come back, uh, so be sure to stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks for joining me, Chris Osborne from Play Comics Podcast.
Okay, so again, that was Ocean Pass with, I'm going to try to pronounce it again, Balins Jaja Kara Taku. Balins Jaja Kara Taku. That means, <clears throat> a liter it translates to, uh, my brother is riding the path of war. Wow, really? That is way better than what I thought it might possibly mean. I thought it meant like Latvia forever or something. Um, but that brings no. That's that that that, that is a uh, that is a gothic. That was a gothic metal remake of a, of an old folk song about you know a young lady uh, a young lady just singing her farewells to her brother who's off uh, who's off to Viking. He's off to you know raiding raiding the British shores or whatever, and, and she's like you know <laughs> saying his goodbyes to him. That's awesome because I picked it because I thought it's like it's kind of like a fire up song. Like it kind of gets you pumped up, and it brings us perfectly into the post-World War II context, and this is when the Soviet Union sports model went from one of mass physical education and just getting the population healthy uh, into they, something that was a, a professionalized uh, uh, model. And as soon as it became... They also returned to the Olympics, I think. Exactly, uh, in yeah, 1952, in 1952, the Summer Olympics. It was their first participation in the Olympics. Um, and after World War II, a fourth goal was added to the system, and that was international recognition and prestige for the state and the state's ideology. And that comes from HAL as well. And in 1956, they uh, participated again in the Olympics. Um, uh, winning Olympic gold medals was the primary goal of the Soviets after World War II. And it was embodied in the Russian concept of master vosto <laughs> uh, proficiency masterstvo. say that one more time for me masterstvo mastery mastery that's essentially yes. mastery proficiency exactly so you see here that it goes from mass public education and physical education to professionalization so i was wondering chris if you could quickly talk a little bit about the post world war 2 context and why this was happening now yeah uh, cuz this is this is a part of a cold war uh, that is a com that might sound stupid, but if you watch Dr. Strangelove, then, you know, they talk about mineshaft gap. Well, there was a sports sportsmanship gap as well, obviously. Right. Because the Soviet Union, as they wanted to spread their ideology abroad and, you know, gain, gain further support of their own issues at home, because uh, even though it's not heard about, but there were some protests against, like, you know, lack of bread and stuff like that within the Soviet Union. It wasn't all peaceful and nice. So, it was used as an ideological tool to show to the people both inside them and outside their superiority. And that still goes on today, if you think about how, you know, with all the doping scandal, but we'll get to that later on. Right. Uh, and the, the whole idea was that the Soviet Union must get better sports, must get better athletes out, prove that how superior they are to the United States of America. The first part, that was their first kind of main uh, nemesis there, so to speak. And that also kind of, uh, by the way, it, it uh, involved chess too, because chess was taken super seriously, right? Because that was the intellectuals, project. right? And and, and why? Know, the why do we know Kasparov's name here in the West, right? <laughs> because that was like the the main arch rival in chess, and like for Westerners, it's like why do we all of a sudden care about chess? Uh, but we care about it because it was the two ideologies going to war, and that's why the yeah. Summit series, as we call it, nineteen seventy two. Uh, hockey series against Canada and the Soviet Union was such a big deal for Canadians. And when I say it was our main contribution to the Cold War, I say that a little bit in jest, but it actually was. It was one of the main things that we did in the Cold War was beat the Russians at a hockey series. See, the thing, but the thing is, the why why you did that is was also it was a big achievement for you guys because at that time uh, the Olympics were amateurs only, right? 
but the Soviets just basically made everyone appear amateur. Right. Because, you know, they were all everyone who was in any Soviet Olympic team or everywhere else, they were formally either in the army or working in some factory or working for the KGB or whatever. They technically counted as amateurs. Right. They never, they, they, there were no, obviously they didn't really work in that their said profession. They were, counts as working there. Right. Uh, but the Soviet Union would obviously state that, no, 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 these are just common working men. What professional <laughs> And due to the fact how the best teams operated on the national level, like, if we talk about, like, both soccer and hockey, there was always two teams. There was the, there was the St. Petersburg Ska and the Atze Ska, the Central Army uh, Sports Club in Moscow, like, Petersburg team and Moscow team because they had the most resources, and they could just commandeer. <clears throat> they could, due to how the Soviet state worked, they basically commandeered best players from other teams to their team. Exactly. Now, um, I have a quote here from somebody named Zilberman from 1982. This guy's from, like, McGill. I just found this on the internet somehow. But it, uh, it gets right to the ideological battle, and then I want to talk a little bit more about the boarding schools that they did. So the quote is, While the Soviet Union could not favorably compete with Western countries, especially the USA, in agriculture, industry, science, or standard of living, it saw a chance of domination in sports and an opportunity to increase in international sports competitions as a means of showing the advantages of a socialist regime. So by winning medals, winning competitions, um, basically the score of any sporting match um, is proof positive that the socialists are winning. Now I'll tell you, basically from 1956 onwards, they kicked the crap out of the West uh, routinely winning the overall Olympic medal count, whether you counted all the satellite states within the, the Soviet Union or whether you split them up. They still, Russia and the Soviet Union won. And you make a good point there, Chris, is the centralization of resources that happen within this system. Um, and then when we get to Perestroika, I want to talk about Pavel Bure, who uh, was an officer, I believe, in the Red Army uh, because that was his team. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. Um, now, for the people of the Soviet Union, I have another quote from Riordan. This one's from 1990. For the Soviet people, success in sport meant an increase in social standing. After World War II, the Soviets elevated athletes to the same level as writers, ballerinas, and artists. For the average citizen living in a nation that promotes anonymity, sports were one of the few ways one could become famous. The state also began to pay athletes for winning medals. So there was also a significant financial incentive to excel in one's event, one event as well. Sport also represented an outlet for people from their dreary daily lives, as all the sports facilities offered free admission to everyone in the state, which is actually something that they consistently did all the way up into the 90s. Now, the Soviet Union, after World War II, as I said, made this more professional, um, one of the ways they professionalized the sporting system was actually identifying elite child athletes. So there were boarding schools where children continued their general education, but also perfected their mastery of a particular sport under the guidance of well-qualified coaches. I, 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 by the way, you, you don't have that in the West? Uh, we do, yeah. And this is what is really fascinating to me about this subject, is that the West, after getting their asses handed to them for like 30 years, somewhere in the 80s, we started mimicking various aspects of the Soviet sporting model. So as the Soviets were exporting this model in the 60s and 70s to places like Cuba or Romania or 
uh, former Yugoslavia, places like this, they, um, it took until like the 80s until we routinely got beat for a couple of decades for Western nations to start adopting aspects of the Soviet sporting system. And now, say in the 90s and then into the early 2000s, that's when we started doing these boarding schools, uh, particularly around hockey. We'll have like hockey schools, elite level hockey schools. And believe it or not, actually when it comes to hockey, the Americans were the first to adopt this sort of Soviet model where they had these elite training facilities where you'd also go to school there as well. Boarding school gap must be close. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but, but this, this is what really happened there. And uh, it's a shame because uh, a lot of these schools have closed down now. And Russia, we have only one left in Latvia. But yeah, they, they took it very, very seriously. And uh, parents were like really encouraged, you know, training their kids in various sports. Because if you were a famous sportsman, it's not about the money. Because, you know, um, if you listen to my show, you might have noticed that money really didn't pay the, such a huge role. It was that... Professional athletes, especially those who went into international competitions, one, they got to visit outside of the USSR, which was very hard for average person to right. do. Secondly, they got to they got to buy stuff in the special stores, you know, reserved for the elites, where you could buy like imported goods and whatever. And you know, this, this is just, it wasn't it wasn't about the money; it was about that they had more access to what the money could actually get you. They. Uh, because you know, an average person had to wait uh, in line to buy a car for five to ten years. Right. But if you if you got like a good result and you were a master athlete, then you could just be given a car. Right. Right. And and that was also one of the one of the biggest things. But if you started waning out, and if you started waning out, there was also kind of that that's that's when the benefits ended. And the second part is that even though these guys who were uh, professionals at that point well de facto professionals uh these people uh, also remember that they all worked at the kgb they had to they had to basically just like everyone else uh, they went for example to the olympics and then the whole olympic team would have to come back and they would have to write reports on what happened where did they go on the other guys and they had kgb guys with them and that also has led to a lot of uh, ex-soviet athletes kind of sinking in deep uh, alcoholism and mental issues because uh it was it was mentally hard for those guys because they they basically saw how life was outside the the Iron Curtain, like outside the Soviet camp, and um, a lot of the stories that I've I've had in my interviews with these people is that like it was very very mentally hard for them to work with the KGB all the time to be under surveillance all the time because they got all these benefits but they were like under glass because they were like like under looking glass all the time because they were used as these examples they had to live their perfect lives and they had to present their lives as ideal to everyone else and. And, and it was like very, very traumatizing for them as well. So these guys didn't. They, these guys, even though they lived better than the average citizen, they had their benefits. It came with the downsides as of well. Of course. And um, when you have a nation that is impoverished, those little benefits, like the access to an automobile, a little bit higher pay than somebody who has the same sort of job, uh, those go a long way. But it is um, ideologically when you see. Uh, the West is not as demonized in some ways as it maybe is portrayed. Um, that is like ideologically earth-shattering. Now, I think it's interesting too with athletes. Uh, you're playing against other athletes, but there's a lot of downtime where you might have some interactions. And as you say, if the state is encouraging you to go gather information, they might encourage a little bit of interaction. And when you get to know some of these people on like a personal level, it's hard to. It's just hard to hate when you know these people as human beings. And it goes both ways. So a lot of 
um, North American athletes when they came back, if they did have interactions with Soviet athletes, they're like, oh, they're they're no different than us. They just live under a totalitarian regime. Well, that that's how it operates basically, because because again, all the hate basically comes from dehumanizing the other, and you know, that's the biggest issue. Once you once you get to know other people, then then it's quite okay. Oh boy, we're getting into philosophy again. No, no, no. <laughs> well, it's all about philosophy, philosophy out, more sports. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, sports is all about <laughs> politics and it's all about philosophy. No, no, no. Sports, sports actually is is way deeper. Sports as sports gives meaning. Sports is sports has been used as a tool by those who most likely are not very good at sports. Except Mr. Putin, he obviously hunts bears while you know being half naked. <laughs> Riding a bear. And, and a horse and at the same time. A horse that's riding a yeah. bear. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what uh, I mentioned it before to you, Chris, there, uh, but in the West and in Canada in particular, we had a program that was very similar to the GTO of Russia and the GTO, what you described from Latvia. Um, they were, it was this program called the Canada Fitness Award Program. It started in 1970 and it went all the way to 1992. So I remember this very well from my time in elementary school. Um, it was a social cultural fitness test um, where we had to do all the same sort of drills, like climbing a rope, that weird like where you hold on to the monkey bars and you're kind of guided by your biceps uh, drill, uh, standing forward jumps, all these things. And our results were ranked and um, correlated. And based on your overall results, you would get one of four badges it went like platinum gold silver and bronze and then i like most people who didn't have natural athletic ability got the participation uh, ribbon now this program was actually mentioned in a tragically hip song called fireworks it's my favorite song ever um but i think it is interesting that the west started taking elements of the soviet model and adapting it to their own context or in some cases literally just taking it from the soviets and putting it right into canada as in the case with the Canada Fitness Award Program. So did your, um, what I wanted to ask, uh, your uncle there, did he also um, have friends who went to the athletic training facility schools? Um, and is wait, there a story? I'll, I'll ask. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, he 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 had some pals who were who were specializing in volleyball. Oh, okay. And did they travel so, internationally as well? But yeah, volleyball side, bros. Yeah, some some of those volleyball guys. One of them made it to the USSR team, national team. So he he traveled abroad a bit. Oh yeah. wow! And it's interesting um, to have that sort of perspective. And then your your uncle having a friend that's within that uh, world would also be able to get a glimpse into the West just by talking to him. Yeah, he 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 brought back souvenirs. Oh, oh like, really? That that that's how he, that's how he drank Coca Cola for the first time. <laughs> what kind of souvenirs? Like, what were some of the things they brought back? That that's fascinating. Mostly, like I said, Coca Cola. If you had Coca Cola, you were the top dog. You know, people people 
if you got your hands on, on a bottle of Coke, then you would drink it and share it with your friends, and then you would keep it in the most visible place ever, like a can of Coke or a bottle of Coke, and, and people would come over to your home and you, you'd just, you know, you show them that you've tasted this. <laughs> That was like a status symbol, like paintings or, 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 or stuff like that. That's awesome. Back into the Soviet Union, uh, the Union of Sports Societies and Organizations, the USSO, you're right, they have a lot of acronyms, was established in 1959, and it was had as its goal professionalizing the GTO system to produce results, so the production of medals and championships. Now, I think what's also interesting in this period between the 50s into the 70s the star athlete and the team became like a thing. Um, and I would argue, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, Chris, I would argue that this um, promotion of the star athlete was the result of the culture of propaganda that was put into place by Stalin, and in particular, his cult of personality. So do you think Stalin's the effects of Stalin's cult of personality had ripple effects into promoting the star athlete or the star team? Oh, obviously, because, again... Uh, you needed to show success in any way that you could. Now, what happens? Uh, sorry, I got to ask you the follow-up question. Good. What happens when you yeah. show too much success in this system? Like, what what happens oh. if you come bigger than your sport or bigger than the system? You know. But it really didn't happen. That's the that's one of the most interesting parts because there were no kind of super mega stars either in in any art form or uh, sports that became like. Uh, they weren't famous to the modern-day celebrity culture. That was kind of a, not a thing. There were fans, and it was good, but uh, the party really kept things in check so that, you know, you always had to say that, hey, it's the collectivist ethos and all that stuff, too. There weren't that huge megastars. They, they were famous, obviously, but it wasn't to the level that, it's now, that it is now. Now, um, I mentioned it just in passing, but the, now correct my pronunciation, but the Spartacade, uh, a biannual regional competition um, culminating in national championships in Moscow. Um, All regions of the Soviet Union were represented at this competition, or in theory they were. And um, it gave competitors and the general population a a sort of a visual authentication of the unity of the USSR. So the Spartacade was a very important uh, biannual athletic competition. Um, yeah, because yeah. the Soviet Union uh, consisted of uh, 15 republics, if I'm, if I'm correct. Exactly, here. like a mini Olympics. Yeah, 15 republics. And it's probably some of the best um, athletics of the time, be like in the 50s, uh, 60s, 70s, because they were uh, the Soviet Union, the USSR, and the uh, regional satellite states were dominating the Olympics. So they did produce the best athletes. So I imagine... These competitions are pretty awesome. Yeah, but like you said, they were portrayed as in the television as more of a celebration of all the unity of all the republics in in the state. Exactly. So, what were some of, of the features of thing. of it then in that regard? Well, besides the fact that they were basically Soviet mini Olympics, in a way, they ended up happening all the time. But they were they, they always everyone held parades, and not like you know the, in the Olympics you have this entry and the exit and the opening on the closing ceremonies where where, where, where athletes walk. Over there, as with every celebration, there was a mass workers' parade. You know, these athletes, they uh, they had to pick up their red flags and everything and walk happy through the streets, waving out, uh, carrying the images of the party higher-ups, and they were joined by the workers. And then a big deal was made out how these, wor- these guys, uh, while being on the Spartakid, they visit their fellow comrades in another factory that produces the same thing as they produce, and they interchange information. 
aka they just got drunk together and partied really hard. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was kind of this this forced event of mandatory happiness. Right. <laughs> That's such a good way of putting it. And you see later in the <laughs> 90s with the Spartacade uh, that participation just dropped. Um, you know, even in the late 80s, it became almost the reverse, a symbol of the disunity of the Soviet Union and um, in a political sense, right? In a way, but again, that is more akin to the fact that people, you know, nobody got really paid for Spartacades. That that was the thing that, that could traumatize. It's like um, you, you didn't get extra pay for results there. You got some medals, you got some honorifics, but it wasn't, there wasn't like no material incentive to do that. That was basically seen as a as a thing you did for the Communist Party, for the cause. Right. That was kind of your payback there. And later on, due to this uh, the, this uh, Spartakid being so ideologic, ideologically tied to uh, the whole party system, it just became became somewhat of a symbol of an old era. Right. It became a symbol for these people of, of the regime that they didn't like. And almost much. a target for the resentment that they feel more generally about the system. They could target it at something like the Spartakid because it's like so ridiculously over the toply ideological, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. One thing that I'm that I'm, I'm told that I must always sure. tell you is how in the team sports. Right. Yeah. Go on. You see, there was there was these different teams, but uh, yeah, the army guys and the KGB guys from my show, you might know that they had a bit of a rivalry going right, on. Right. That extended to sports. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the the teams who were considered army teams always fought very. Who were always uh, some sort of uh, ISK, like army army sportivny club, army sports club. Like all the teams were like that, and then all the, the KGB teams were Dynamo. Dynamo. Yeah. Yeah. Minsk Dynamo and stuff yeah. like that, and they were the most bitter of all rivalries. That was crazy because. Uh, the rivalry between the army and the KGB inside the Soviet state was some was the closest thing to political struggle which happens in other countries. You know, uh, it was like two major groups of power. Whoa! I never. And sorry, then, man. I never even. I've never thought of it that way. That that is the first it, yeah. time I've heard anyone describe it that way. That's fascinating. Can you follow that but, line of thinking, please? Yeah, sure. Because you know, there were like there were power groups. There were the ideological ideological communists from the party. Then there were the army power structure, and then there was the KGB power structure. And they were completely rivaled to each other. And the party essentially tried to keep both KGB and army in check, because they were the real power bases of everything. And obviously, as the same way as the Soviet Union tried to produce these star athletes and winning teams and used sports for their own causes, the army and the KGB used... Uh, sports within their own teams amidst them to basically raise their own status, you know, to be more prestige than the other guys. Right, and that's... Because you, you have to remember the KGB ran their own army. They had their own uh, internal army and the army of the border guard. And there were people from the KGB in the army who were like, you know, political uh, political officers ready to, you know, look at uh, look at whether or not this this here uh, general or that other general is actually re- really loyal to the state and, and so, so forth. So the army controlled the borders, is that right? No, the KGB, KGB controlled, the controlled the borders. So that's interesting. Well, K- KGB was the only KGB was the only border guard on KGB ran a border army with uh, like more artillery than the French army. Wow. But that artillery was aimed not outside, but within, towards the Soviet Union exactly. itself. Oh, yeah, and... and uh, yeah, uh, up until 1953, while Stalin was alive, 
until Stalin died, there was also the third kind of class of themes, which was specifically for the Air Force. And what were they called? But that, but that died out. Oh, they did? VVS. Uh, they were just like ISKA, just VVS. They were there in the soccer and in hockey because uh, Stalin's son personally took care of these uh, these guys, but then they kind of faded out. They, they were merged with the army. And that's the... And that's the other thing, it seems, with these sports systems is that it provided a perfect opportunity for a little bit of inside cronyism, which is it's not just an element of the Soviet political system. That is a hallmark of all political systems, is you put your guys in place and you put your allies, you surround yourself with your allies. So sports provided a bit of an opportunity to do that as well, right? Even symbolic positions of power sometimes carry really hard weight exactly. when it comes to that. Exactly. Because uh, you know, the public figures is something that people... Uh, can rally around, and as we can see, with like, for example, modern soccer fans are known for their aggressiveness, both English and Russian, and uh, yeah, and and they people can rally around these people. They can become sort of some sort of symbols, and you you want those guys to say things that are useful to you. As people sometimes listen. Exactly. So, by exporting the um, athletic model to their satellite states, like the um, like the East German Republic. Um, I have a quote here from something from 1984. I don't know where I found this in the UBC library, but anyway, um, they described the German um, um, sports model as representing a mirror image of sports in the USSR. First and foremost, sports were free and open to all through government-owned sports facilities. They also had the GTO test and held biannual Spartacades. The Germans followed the idea of Massivos uh, by having strong union involvement and a focus on youth through sports in schools. The strong showing in international competitions like the Olympics was a testament to the strong support of the government. And that was from 1984, published in East Germany. So you see even here at a later date, they're still holding on to all these old ideals from whether it's the 50s or even in the 30s of you know mass participation, about national unity. Um, so the Russians or the USSR, exported the sports model as a way of exporting their ideology and their political organizational principles to their other uh, nations under their control. It was, it was, but it was pretty, it's pretty normal even today because, you know, countries sort of do that. Uh, some, some, however, do more than, than uh, others because uh, what, what really shocked me was that, um, and I'm going to twist this into a very dark thing Please now. Uh, you know, in the latest Olympics, uh, the Russians won the gold medal, right, in the hockey. That's right. But it was because every other team basically refused to send their NHL guys because it was kind of decided that hey we should kind of you know not make sure the NHL guys just don't just make make sure the Olympics are really a bit more lower level hockey for some reason. Yeah. The Russians, however, brought all their stars in and you know they beat Germans uh, four to three at the end. But uh, what really struck me as odd was that and after that in social media uh, it was like there were a bunch of comments which basically were. Sort of, sort of remembrance. They kind of tied this to World War Two. Even there were like uh, images of a Russian, like photoshopped images of, say, a Russian hockey player imposed in this uh, capturing the Reichstag building with a Russian flag there, and they they basically went with a lot of comments. This is for our grandpas and stuff like wow. that. It was like really violent at one point, and and it's like, yeah, we beat the Nazis once again. Woo! But it's like, what Nazis? Yes, that's um. Yeah, that's disgusting. And um, sports has always been used for propaganda purposes. Um, so again, I like I should know. Uh, you know, we did the same thing in the West, like beating up on the Russians. Um, 
you know, we, yeah, anyway, it, it goes deep. It runs really deep. Now, this sort of, I will mention um, one interesting example of exporting the sports model was Cuba. Uh, because they were a small island nation with a smaller economy, they really specialized in two sports, boxing and baseball. Um, and Cuba was actually one of the places where defections started happening earlier. They had defections in the 70s. So Cuba presents a really interesting example, but I think we're running a little long, so we'll just leave it there. I encourage people to learn more. Now, this takes us up to the 1990s, the late 80s, in an era called perestroika, which loosely translates into the process of privatization. But perestroika literally means rebuilding. Rebuilding? It's like rebuilding. Oh, interesting. It's called rebuilding. What... Um, uh, it, it involves privatization, but perestroika means literally rebuilding over building something. Oh, that, building that's, that's on top of something, complexion. rebuilding on top of something like else? Tearing, tearing old stuff down. Oh, and so you have to stuff. tear it down first as well. Now, many people will say this was like a, a peaceful sort of process. And, uh, um, you know, there was bumps on the road. They're largely economic. I was wondering if you could um, take us to the 1990s. Um, and share some of the experiences that you know of of this time of perestroika. Well, uh, that's where I was young. Yeah. That was, a, was a, when a, that, that's my time. But um, yeah, it was really harsh because the economical situation was just dreadful because uh, the transfer from the socialistic system to capitalist one, especially when over here in the Baltics we got our independence and everything like that, was really difficult because uh, imagine this one at one point. Without any interference, the prices just, you know, were released, so to speak, because, you know, every, everything had the set, government set price in the Soviet Union. And then at one day you wake up and, fi and find out that everything has, like, increased in price tenfold. And tomorrow it happens once again, and so forth. Because uh, free market just hit and, you know, the salaries really didn't catch up and people weren't paid it along in a lot in a long while. So, yeah, uh, that is why in, like, the early 90s, obviously... Uh, like sports suffered from this a lot. There were some t talented athletes, like our own uh, Sandis Wozolinc and Artur Sirba, who like moved to the NHL. Right. And they're like national heroes, yeah. but those guys were lucky ones. They uh, they uh, they most certainly provided uh, for their families and for like their all their whole relative bunch. Because at that time over here, it was was really a uh, very difficult time economically, and, and that's that's how when a lot a lot of uh, sporting facilities went to disrepair. And like, no one had no one had much of a sporting activities in their thoughts really, and the system kind of crumbled in general with all the situation. One thing that really happened though is that after we regained independence in 1991, uh, there were attempts by international that, that kind of uh, got into us into the major deal and major corruption court case, because International Football Federation gifted to a bunch of countries, including Latvia. Like, they, they gave us money so that we would, like, you know, fix up our stadiums and, you know, increase, like, improve the system or whatever. But that whole money got stolen by organized crime. That is why that is what also caused problems. But, yeah, international sports organizations actually donated quite a bit, quite a bit of money to, you know, save the crumbling uh, Soviet sports uh, thing. But a lot of it really got stolen. Wow. And back in Russia and the other satellite states, you know, leading in through the mid-80s and into the late 80s and throughout the 90s, uh, the numbers from the GTO program tended to be grossly exaggerated uh, by corrupt administrators and issues of forced participation developed into sort of anti-sport sentiment 
which evolved into anti-state sentiment. Now that's from yeah, but, but that's that's from at that point nobody. But that's from Reardon. Really that's cared. that's from this like scholar that I'm quoting from 1990. So and I'm the only reason I point that out is because it's 1990 and this guy is from the West. So there was the scholarship when I was writing this paper as an undergrad. The scholarship from Western scholars of this time was very much like ha ha ha. We told you it would eventually crumble, and it was a big ten years of Western academics looking down their nose at what they saw as the failed uh, socialist uh, political agenda. Well, it 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 failed economically. That that's what Soviet Union really did. But you know, it was a huge, massive bureaucracy that didn't really work out that well, infused with tons of corruption. But at that point, see, uh, we just stopped hearing about these GDA norms and all that stuff being enforced because by the end, by the 90s, every program that the Soviets ran became like tongue-in-cheek enforced. Exactly. It was like, you know, on paper only. So obviously they couldn't really enforce any <laughs> any real forced attendance or whatever and people just, you know, people who resented every everything Soviet, obviously they didn't like the norms as well. Besides, why why would you actually, you know, put yourself through physical effort if you're not really good at this, if you can just go go to your kind of, you know, dean, give him a bottle of vodka and pass anyway? That, and also if you're really hungry waiting in a bread line, it's not like you're going to do a 50-meter dash, <laughs> like follow that, you know? So it's like they had more important things to concern themselves with at that time than um, participating in sports. But then when the state is like a sort of compulsory... Um, it's kind of, it makes resentment. Now, I have a quote from Reardon. When, yes, the economics um, collapse, but the Western scholars here, this is from the same publication, 1990, it's on page one. They saw it as a cultural, social, political collapse, not just economic. Um, whether or not that was the case or not, um, that's how we see it over on this side. So this is the quote. The, and again, this is from page one. The we know what's good for you syndrome by which men tell women what sports they should play. The fit tell the disabled that sport is not for them. The old tell the young they can only play on their old terms in their clubs using their facilities. The political leadership, mindful of the nation's and ideology's international reputation, decides that competitive Olympic, i.e. European sports, are the only civilized forms of culture. So he's like really getting at like the ideological collapse and the questioning uh, that's going on there, and it goes way beyond economics. Uh, so, like, what do you think when you see that sort of um, quote from an academic at that time? No, it's actually that—that is—that is what—that uh, is what I tried to fix in my show because it wasn't like when you talk about the collapse of ideology, that that ideological collapse of the fact that like less and less people started to believe in this Soviet Soviet version of, of uh, socialism, that happened in the 70s already. This this just, you know, spewed out. Right. Because uh, this, this kind of view presumes that everyone was previously hardcore believers of the Soviet state, and now they weren't. Well, that is really not the case here. But then again, ideological mishaps have happened like all the time and people, you know, judging judging ideologies while living on the other side of something and, and then making such things is like, you know, pretty common. That, that's why I tried to make my show because, you know, I'm from here, so I, I can explain it through some, some uh, even though anecdotal and empirical, at least I can get oh, some yeah, experiences. And then again, then again, still here, uh, like in modern day Russia, there are a bunch of, bunch of critics of Putin and this kind of ties in because it's kind of similar to this. They, for one, blame Putin and his, like, uh, 
economical failures right now, and those are Putin's critics, who call him filthy liberal. Mm. Imagine, imagine this, there are people now in Russia who don't understand how, for example, liberalism works, so they think liberalism equals hardcore capitalism, therefore Putin is a liberal. Wow, wow, that's weird. Because we, uh, the pejorative over here is... I, I, think, I think it's kind of the same thing here going on in, in yeah, some totally. way. I, I don't yeah, know. And, and the pejorative here for um, politicians or anybody, really, is calling them a socialist. Like, they used to call Obama a socialist because he wanted to bring in health care. Uh, not even, like, yeah, not even universal health care, like, like um, just, like, include more people in their health care system, which is already broken. But that's another point. Now, let me tell you, comrades, <laughs> yeah, th please do. To, to those listening here, that's not social. I know. That's that's not what the word means. The same is, th th that's like calling Putin a liberal. Yeah, if, a oh, wait. if anything, like, <laughs> national health care is communalism or something. Like, it's not even, is more like communism. But anyway, um, so in the 80s, uh, as you say, Chris, um, the cracks are starting to form. And even way back into the 70s, but it just spilled out in like 1989 through to 91. So um, there is anti-state sentiment. Um, people are feeling resentful of being used as tools for government and all this compulsory stuff is starting to create resentment, I think. So one of the responses by the government yeah. when it comes to sports was to open the doors of the elite training facilities in the 80s. Um, but they would charge an admission fee, hoping to prop up a program that was dwindling with funds. And as a way, I think, in the 80s of dipping their toes into the pools of privatization. Um, and furthermore, um, official permission was given by the government in 1987 for co-op fitness centers to open. And they started offering non-traditional individualistic sports like Aikido, skateboarding, breakdancing, alongside more traditional sports like weightlifting, swimming, and which I found out you did, uh, fencing. Um, but there was a huge waiting list for them. Um, but anyway, those started happening. And then in North America in the 80s, um, because we got spanked by the Soviets all the way through the 70s, it kind of spawned this general fitness craze all the way through the 80s. Um, and also, as we mentioned before, a refocus on elite training programs and professionalizing professional sports, actually. Um, so professional sports started to emerge in the 80s as a mainstream phenomenon. Um, however, the USSR all the way through the 80s were still dominating in the Olympics and international competitions however we started seeing like weird little cracks such as paychecks starting to be missed and so on yeah paychecks starting to be missed that's a, that's a common a common perestroik error thing because that is why the perestroik happened at all because there wasn't really any shifts in power and if you went into this like imagine huge nepotism and corruption everywhere right like people were <laughs> people were like uh, stealing stealing uh, rocket parts and special wiring so that they could sell it on the sell the metal on the black market and get some get some nice stuff and you know if that happens everywhere, then not only you know uh, rockets stop fi stop flying, then uh, suddenly you know your your hockey skis start breaking apart, and and stuff like that. Because starting with the eighties, uh, starting with the mid eighties, Soviet Union athletes stopped using equipment produced in the Soviet Union. In the professional level in the Olympics, right? Else. And I went to the because the production kind of crashed. crashed right, down. and I, I went to the um, Canadian Museum of History, uh, and they had a display for the Summit Series, the '72 series, and uh, Trechak's uh, goalie stick was there, and that was in 1972, and it was a Coho, which is a Canadian hockey stick manufacturing company, or 
or at least something from the West. I think it was Canadian. And yeah. you would routinely see that and um, where players would exchange equipment after a match. Um, but it wasn't exchanging equipment. It was just like Canadians just giving hockey sticks to their to their uh, Russian counterparts, for example. Um, so now, as of 1989, 27 Russian hockey players had defected to play in North America's NHL. Um, the, but the Soviets, at that point, they started actually selling players, uh, which provided much-needed financial support for individual teams and the sports organization in general. Um, so in the 80s, like mid-80s, early 80s, um, defection was kind of illegal. So the Stasny brothers uh, from the Czech Republic, they're a very famous example here in Canada. They went and played for the Winnipeg Jets, and or no, the Quebec Nordiques, rather. And uh, But they had to, like, run off in the middle of the night, and they had, like, KGB agents chasing them and stuff. But as the 80s rolled on and into the 90s, the Soviets started actually selling players. Um, so I have actually an example from soccer, which is rare for me because I'm not a big soccer guy. But Renat uh, Daziev signed a two-year contract with the Spanish club Sevilla. Um, in this deal, the USR Sports Committee took 55% of um, his home club and his home club Sparta or Spartak took 40%, and the agent took 5%. Um, but the money gained from this deal actually made Spartak self-sustaining uh, um, um, in, in the late 80s. So you see, um, yeah, you see players are starting to be sold, and they're using that money to prop up the system that's failing. Oh, they, they, sold, they sold all sorts of things. At one point, you don't even know, uh, when, when Tetris was invented... Then the inventor of, of that game didn't get anything, so it's even used Tetris. Gorbachev personally oversaw, you know, the licensing and grabbed a bunch of money for state for, for Tetris. Wow. Obviously, he took everything from, like, what he could get from uh, Western uh, sports clubs as well. This was like, hey, we can, we can sell what to the West? Wow. Okay. So they just started pumping out everything, because literally, imagine, everything was state-owned. Yeah. So... Uh, it was considered that your training was also owned by the state. Therefore, it is obvious that you going to play somewhere abroad, well, the state must have some money from this. Right. And now, interestingly enough, as this is all going on, uh, Moscow actually hosted the 1980 Summer Games. Um, and it's interesting that this is the first Olympic Games in Eastern Europe, uh, the only Summer Olympics held there, and the first Olympic Games to be held in a Slavic language-speaking country. It was the first Olympic Games to be held in a socialist country as well. Only 80 nations were represented at the Moscow Games, the smallest number since 1956. And there was a general boycott led by the United States and the then president, uh, Jimmy Carter. Um, and they boycotted the Olympics. 66 countries boycotted the game because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Some of the athletes from the boycotting countries participated in the games under the Olympic flag. What we actually is sort of similar to what we saw this year at the Winter Olympics with Russia, the Olympic athletes of Russia. Um, now, this boycott led to a Soviet-led boycott of the 1984 Games and the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul. Now, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, um, the Russian Olympic Committee was established, um, and the Russians competed as part of a unified team, they called it, in 1992, and once again as Russia in the 1994 Winter Olympics. Yeah, because because the idea of what was it, uh, Union of Independent States, I suppose that was the that was the official name of that team for that year for their organization. 
the NVS, I think. The, 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 the United Team in 1992 Olympics, which was called, uh, I guess it was the team of uh, <clears throat> Union of Independent States. Yeah, that, that, was, that, was, that was the name of, of the 1992 thing. 1992 also marks our uh, first medal for independent Latvia in oh. games, where we where one of our uh, one of our shoot it wasn't shooting with a pistol. Oh, cool. uh, we got we got we got uh, silver. That's awesome, and it's funny how you remember those first moments. And this is where the Soviets used it as such a powerful propaganda tool. The sport that is is that you remember that first medal, and it brought you you know nationalistic Latvian pride. So it's um, in a way, you know, in a way. Also, what the Soviets did was uh, when we talk about the first is that. They also built up our sled track, you know, bobsled right. track in Sigulda, which is now the basis of our whole bobsleigh slash luge slash yeah, skeleton La- thing, which is really yeah, big in Latvia because awesome we're good at, at this it. sport. Yeah, that's like one of your best sports, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it just, it just happened there. And that's one of the things, well, most of these sport things, you know, we are, we are a very small country. There's like two million, two million people living here uh, or, or, or so. So for us... Sports even now is a matter of hey somebody knows where Latvia yeah, is, totally. and then then you don't then then somebody maybe learns more about our country because trust me I have heard enough comments of where Latvia is 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 that Russia no, oh god that must be painful to hear you're 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 in Europe oh wow that's bad <laughs> stuff that's like bad. that because nobody know, we, <laughs> see because we we're in the size of West Virginia approximately that that's the closest approximation to what people uh, from Americas can understand so. It's not like we're huge. We're there, there's just a tiny amount of us there. So, hey, uh, even when we lose, we kind of feel happy. Like uh, last time, like not in the, not in these Olympics because we actually managed to, to not qualify due to some silly losses. But in Sochi Olympics, that game against you guys and Canadians when we, when we lost one to two, that was that was still pretty intense. Well, yeah, here. because so we remember even those moments because there was there was a hard like you know for, for us. Doing something in sports means that hey, you know, we're we're proud that someone knows the name of Latvia, and we're happy that you know our guys coming from this small country can do something. Oh yeah, so. and and even, that's kind of state from Soviet. Yeah, time, I even like a loss like to a team like Canada in hockey, it's like wow, our guys are able to keep up with Canada. Like that that is uh, that's a win, you know, even though you technically lost the game, right? Yeah, because it was really really exactly. close. Our, exactly. Latvia, Latvian Latvian tradition goes that we. <laughs> In hockey, uh, our team has like great, great offense and awesome goalies, but our defenders are just miserable. Right, for the <laughs> exactly. Most part. That's the that, that's the consideration that Latvian, like Latvian defense is is terrible. That's why we need to have awesome <laughs> goalies. And then you got like Archer Zerbe, who's like the smallest goalie of all time. I used to call him the Latvian giant just for fun. But anyway, um, so. His his nickname his nickname in Latvia was simply the, the wall. wall. That's awesome! What a great name! I love that guy, man. Everyone loves Archer Serbe in Vancouver. I'll tell you that right now. Um, so another person that Vancouverites love and I have to talk about is Pavel Bure. Um, Pavel oh, yeah. Bure, as a young person in like 1991, the wave of Russian players that were coming into the NHL was so exciting. Every single team had a hot shot Russian. And ours was Pavel Bure. Uh, we already had Igor Larionov, actually. Um, and he's the one, Igor Larionov and Fetisov, um, were two people who um, spearheaded the campaign to let Soviet players join the NFL, NHL. Um, Bure was um, drafted 
uh, later in the draft in 1991 because they were afraid that he wasn't actually going to leave uh, the Russian Federation. And he signed for $200,000. So the Canucks paid $200,000 to his home club, Red Army, Central Red Army. Um, and then Central Red Army is like, no, nah, we want an extra 50 grand. Like they, they, <laughs> they squeeze them for an extra 50 grand. So Burry's like, I'll pay the $50,000. Just let me go play. Um, and the Canucks are like, no, nah, we'll, we'll cover that. So that's how they got him over here. And then as soon as Burry signed, uh, landed, he signed a four year contract worth about 2.7 million with an $800,000 signing bonus. Uh, he brought over his mom, dad, and then eventually his brother, uh, Valerie Bray, who also played in the NHL for a short time. So Pavel Bray was like, you know, the biggest deal ever when I was a young person. So I had yeah, to he was in. He was like really, we, we knew about, we knew a lot about him yeah. now. But like, one of, the, one of the weirdest things about like athletes and how sport is like today for up to this point is like, uh, like, Putin used them in, in his uh, new elections now because I don't know how, but it seemed kind of silly when all these NHL players from Russia who all live in the United States and Canada will all have real estate there. And for the most part, a lot of them are citizens or and stuff like that. And they have families there. They formed pro put They formed Team Putin and you know, went, ab- went abroad in Russia and doing some public speeches for Putin and in support of Putin for wow. him. For some reason, it's kind of it's kind of sad, actually. Yeah, because that's the but, thing about Burry uh, is later, like in his post-playing career, he, he's kind of a hack for the government of Russia. And another one who is well wrapped up. I don't know the details on it, but uh, Tretiak, the goalie, has always been a bit of a party man. You know, I kind of think they have to be. I think in so a way. too, and that's what I think is very interesting about this time period, the early '90s. And then the players who came before, where they really had to be like Trechak couldn't just be like wearing blue jeans and running around pissing off like whoever was in power at the time. Um, and I think Bure as well has to sort of play the part a little bit. I guess so, but and, and again and again, this is this is the same thing that's that's been intertwined all the time because uh, here in the Soviet Union, as everything was owned by the state, I think kind of the explanation here goes because they had this organized system and everything that the achievements of the athletes weren't presented inside the country as the achievements of those people. It was presented as, look at what our marvelous system did. Look what what sort of people we can produce who can then go on and win. And they can obviously win and they could... uh, The Soviet propaganda went like they could only achieve these results because they were born in the socialist country. Because that, that 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 went on, and 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 this kind of um, you know use of use of this 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 whole thing. So, so let's wrap up on this point weird. here. Then um, we're talking about Putin. We're talking about modern Russia. We're talking about post perestroika. Um, so we got the KHL. We got big oligarchic money that came in in all sectors, including the professional sports sector. So Putin comes to power in two thousand one. I learned a whole bunch of details from your amazing podcast. The Easter Borders podcast. So thanks again, Chris Stapps. Um, so no, thank you for thank you for listening, comrades. <laughs> love it, man. I love it so much. Um, so Putin to me reminds me a lot of Stalin and his propagandic sort of way. So I think Putin sees sport just like Stalin did. Um, they're maybe not into sports, but they see the economic and political. Oh no, 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 it has. no! Putin's really into sports. 
Putin is a fan of St. Petersburg. Oh, is Scott. he? Okay, cool. I didn't know that. I just seen him riding horses with no shirt on. So <laughs> those guys, by the way, and this is the one of the most important things is one of the Russian hockey commentators uh, just went on a rant just before the election oh, on really? Twitter, where, where he basically looked at the KHL, which is like our continental right. hockey league, where uh, the, the not only Russian teams play there, there are also teams like from all over Europe including Riga Dynamo, which which is playing there, but they have, like, weird rules. This year, everything was stacked so that Putin's favorite team would what? win. They literally... Because in KHL, uh, they have a limit on... They have a limit on how... For Russian teams, uh, not for, uh, like, Slovak or Latvian teams. The Russian teams have a limit on how many foreign players they can have, on how many, how much they can pay uh, to their, their members. It's also that their hockey would get better and stuff like that. But essentially, Ska is the money, is the team which has received state funding in, like, insane amounts. They break all the legionary rules, they break all the salary rules, and they were literally stacked up, uh, even though they are, like, constantly very, very awesome. They were stacked up against weak opponents, uh, specifically, and there are a lot of evidence that a bunch of games were just, you know... um, fraudulently uh, made because uh, the, the team playing <laughs> yeah yeah because because the the opposing the opposing team's coach just got a message saying that hey it would be very nice if Scott would win this that's awesome <laughs> wow so uh that that's that that's a thing which was a uh, it was it was reported by a uh, russian hockey commentary from all hockey.ru uh now i can't attest to the truthfulness of this fact completely but that's my source so, here, so like hey. That doesn't seem unlikely. Of course, to be and honest. now that is phenomenal in the sense that it's like, wow, that's a lot to chew on. That's pretty obvious um, corruption. Uh, but now, if you were a, a hockey player who was looking at an opportunity in the KHL, uh, you might look at something like that and say, why would I want to play in a system like this? Because you know, athletes do believe in fair play, um, whether even though they're super competitive, uh, they they don't want some to play on some team that has like the Moscow team who stacked up against them. So, yeah, but that's this year because previous years were much better cuz I see KHL is the hockey league that we all watch here, right. you know, the only that's where our team yes, plays. Riga Dynamo, so so that, that that used to be better this year, but remember this was an election mm. year. So it kind of matters. Does matter. But then again, you know, all the all the system with with Russian Russian meddling in sports is, is kind of crazy because if we don't talk about the doping scandal with with the weirdness, then that's kind of crazy. That's right. One thing that I don't get is about the like the, they added this meldonium thing in uh, the, the list of prohibited yep. chemicals. That thing was invented in Latvia in seventy six. Hey, here it's known by the name mildonats. Hey. It was invented by Latvian. It was originally intended to uh, help people with heart issues. Right. Because what it does, uh, this new substance, which is super popular, um, it, it does, uh, it changes the way how your heart uh, uses energy, okay. like shifts around uh, kind of the chemicals, okay. the chemical balance there a bit. Basically, it allows your heart to endure more. Uh, it, it's useful if, but it's like really, it, it was intended as, it's a, it's a medicine. It's a medicine for people with heart issues, strengthen your heart, but it allows you in long term to endure, like you, you can run fast, you can run more. It doesn't make you run faster. It allows you to oh, stamina. Uh, like it, it's useful in endurance yeah. sports. It gives right. you stamina. Now comes the question. Now, why the bloody hell did the guys who uh, played curling in the Olympics this year? I want to ask you about that. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because 
it's not because of stupidity. It's because of systemical things. Because if every, you know, uh, the coaches have their own FSB guys assigned to them, and they have a thing, they must feed their sportsmen the substances somehow, and the sportsmen might not even know they are taking this shit. That's right. Yeah. Seriously. Exactly. It's and just like another pill things... or another, like, sort of vitamin B exactly. shot that you take or whatever. The nice men from the government just give you the stuff, and if you want to achieve results, then you have to participate in the system. That's it. So, obviously, the guys who did it for curling, it was just... It was a random... Most likely, it was just a random mess-up, and they were given pills that were meant for someone else. Yeah, they were given the pills that were meant for the sprinters, but they got it as curlers, and that's why they couldn't chuck their rocks straight. Yeah, because eating... Because, you know, having doping for curling... For curling a full... (laughs) I'm not saying curling is curling is awesome. I actually like watching oh, it. Oh yeah, and, uh, no, play you're it talking to Canadian times. here, bro. It's really, really <laughs> we love our curling. It's, it's actually, it's it's more fun yeah. than it looks to those totally. who don't know. But I don't really know how 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 making your heart working. But I I mean they, they do have to use the brooms maybe. No, I mean like you you can't do it at the Olympic <laughs> level. But curling is a sport you can drink a beer and play. So like you don't need steroids in that in that situation. So I think you're right. They probably screwed up. But this does get to. The point, it's um, a state-sanctioned doping scandal, and the recent Winter Olympic team, oh no, big slap on the wrist, um, they were shamed publicly, but had to compete under the Olympic flag, you know? So... That really, by, by the way, due to, due to the doping scandal, we got, like, that really angered us, because in Sochi, our skeleton guys, Martin Dukurs and Thomas Dukurs, those guys were, uh, like, Martin Dukurs is the nine times world champion of that exactly. thing. Exactly. And he, and he literally, in Sochi, he was denied his gold. He, the, both brothers got silver and bronze, respectively. But all the starts that time, because uh, for the start, it's like, it's like luge or bobsleigh. The guy had identical starting times for, the, for, for, for like, all the runs. Wow. To, the, to the hundredth of a second. That alone caused a lot of suspicion here, but yeah, everyone here basically suspected that he cheated because his result, because the Russian guy's results in the season were was nowhere near, and at least we got that medal back. But the thing is, uh, it's just another thing. It's just all the and and the the worst part is that uh, when we talk when we talk about the doping scandal, it's I, again I want to stress here that I don't want to blame the athletes. They probably well some possibly kind of knew what was going on, but they hoped it wasn't. But a lot of them, uh, a, lo- a lot of them who tested positive on these tests, they probably didn't even know they were taking this. It was just the system, which was worked with the trainers and the coaches and uh, the staff to ensure maximum results, because if Putin can show maximum results, then he can get maximum popularity. Exactly. You know? Because all because all of this mentality. Exactly. And and, and, and that's really, that's the, really the biggest tragedy of the whole system, because... Because uh, again, one of the the old coach of the Soviet era Moscow Central Red Army Club, he basically stated that he really feels bad for the athletes, and that you know the doping system is in place because, like I said, Russia can't even produce their own equipment for their for their exactly. athletes, with the hockey sticks and everything. And now they have to resort to this, and well, uh, the system can just they use the standard phrase in modern Russian politics. Or we we weren't those guys. We didn't do anything. Deny everything all the time. That that's fine. But the athletes who got into trouble now, now it's just like, it's another sacrifice for the state for no no fucking reason. And those guys, 
those guys just got to pay the price that really wasn't theirs to exactly. pay. Exactly, and we see the thing. same thing. Like, this is not the first doping scandal by Russia. Look at all the uh, women's track results from the 70s and 80s. Those records are never getting broken because they're all jacked on testosterone or whatever the hell they were shooting into people in the 80s. And now we can also see the long-term effects of steroid use. They, well. they did they did, they did, did crazy things. You can things. see it. You I can mean, see their chins read, and stuff. You I, can see it in them. I've, I read the reports that for, uh, for athletes, they basically uh, did artificial impregnation, and then uh, they arranged it in such a way so that they would be like in the third month during the Olympics, and then they forced abortions at Jesus that time. Christ. Due to the fact that female body produces a lot of vitamins and everything, it's yeah, just well, you can cover the testosterone with estrogen, right? Yeah, yeah, and and they basically just just jacked it up and they they did pregnancies with abortions there. This is like insane. crazy, and that's that's the saddest part. Like like you said, everyone wants to see a fair fight, no matter who wins. Like if the if if it's worth watching, and if you if you want to watch watch it and root for someone, then it's great. If if it's like if it's a fair struggle, then it's awesome. Then it's just you know sportsmanship and all the great stuff, but but when 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 terrible when when cheating happens, then that's that's bad. That's really really bad, and uh, you know that's that's a shame because uh, during the so I, I can I can assure you that in the Soviet era, they really didn't even have that much doping available, uh, at least for for a part, especially in the later Soviet era. Sixties and seventies was one thing, but in the eighties, the Soviet state literally ran out of of money for. Uh, using these chemicals. Yeah, so. Ben Johnson was using it over here in Canada to win his track mates. So on that note, um, Chris, I want you to really thank you. You can check out uh, his show, Eastern Borders Podcast. Find it the same place you found us. Do you have any social media handles that you are typically on? Yeah, I have. I have at, uh, I have uh, on Twitter, Eastern underscore border. And you can just find me on Facebook by typing in the Eastern Border uh, this, if if you see my logo, it's it's the one that is a mashup between the Soviet flag and European Union flag. Please give us a listen, cause uh, that's that's one thing. Cause you know I like my logo, but apparently some people have have picked it thinking that I'm some sort of pro-Russian ultra-communist guy. Um, not, first really. time I listened to the show, I I was listening with that ear. I'm like, is this guy pro? No, okay, no. It becomes quite apparent after you listen for like three minutes that you're not either of those things. So, Chris, thank you for helping me cover so much ground. <laughs> I had an absolute blast. Uh, you can contact Semi-Intellectual Musings via email at semi-intellectual at gmail.com, Twitter's at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D, or through Facebook at The SimPod. And we will be back to read and possibly sing out some reviews, so stick around for that. But first, one more song from Ocean Path.
Thanks for hanging in, everybody. Um, before delving into the review section, which is really a thank you section, I wanted to send a quick thanks again to Kristaps Andresens of the Eastern Border Podcast for hanging in for such a long conversation and fighting through some technical glitches. His headphones were on a slight delay and my internet was not very good, so sorry if it sounded like we were talking over each other a bit there. But also, big thanks to Uncle Gundars, who provided fascinating insights into what it was like participating in the GTO and high-level amateur sport in the Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s. I mean, that can of Coke tidbit? Pretty funky, right? I should give the Eastern Border Podcast an extra few words of praise. For Phil and I, our podcast is just for fun, and we have little fear of direct reprisal. You heard in part one that for Chris, this is not always the case. Some podcasters are doing so in environments that are not conducive to free expression, and even if censorship is not overt and obvious, there can be reprisals. He is brave in my books, full of piss and vinegar, and I love him for this reason and his show. I also love how he takes deep historical, cultural, and social insights and connections, and he draws them out on the show. He really flushes it out, like you really learn a lot. And as per tradition on our show, I love to say, huh, never thought of that before. When I'm listening to Eastern Border, I find myself saying that all the time in every episode. And I like to think I know a little bit about Soviet and Russian history, but nah, guy. So go listen to Eastern Border and get a real schooling that will somehow also fire you up to change the world. And thanks again, Ocean Path. Your music went perfectly with this episode. And I think I might have found my new favorite Latvian folk metal goth electronic Viking pump-up music band. So see the show notes for all the links. So this time I wanted to do some thank yous to a bunch of supportive podcasters. So first up, Chris Osborne from Play Comics. It's a podcast that is about video games that are based on comic books. Um, so either comic books have been turned into video games or vice versa. Um, he does really good deep dives. You learn a lot on that show, actually. And again, I th feel like I know a lot about retro console gaming, but no, Chris Osborne puts me, puts me, uh, puts me to bed and takes me to school. Put it that way. Um, he's really supportive on Facebook and Twitter. Um, yeah, he still needs to listen to all our past episodes. I don't know how that's possible, but he did leave a Facebook review. Matt and Phil do a great job of finding interesting and informative guests on a wide range of academic and social subjects. See, folks, see how easy that was? Uh, so thanks, Chris Osborne. Uh, go listen to Play Comics and leave a similar review for him on Facebook and iTunes. Okay, Megan and RJ from Oh No Lit Class. Oh no, Lit Class. It's a show about dead authors and required readings that you might have encountered in school. Yet they use poop and toothpaste jokes constantly. Two of my favorite segments is cooking or financing with RJ, and my favorite thing about the show is Megan's ability to corral RJ is really the secret sauce. I, for the first time ever, financially supported a podcast by buying a toothpaste t-shirt that references Crushing It, <laughs> which I, I love that. <laughs> uh, you should all subscribe and laugh your faces off to Oh No Lit Class on the Brain Trust Network. It's a worry, and his wife, Mika, who is, by the way, a superwoman. Not just Wonder Woman, superwoman. Uh, their podcast is called Young, Free, and Coupled. I feel like I found Issa first online, but then others found out how rad he is and quickly became his friend. So now he's like friends with everybody in the indie podcast community, but I called dibs on him. He is my butt... <laughs> he is my pod buddy first, dang it. 
um, uh, those two, on, uh, Isa and Mika, they love each other to bits and they love their kids even harder. Um, they are perfect parenting role models for anyone to follow, yet they don't put themselves out there as parenting role models, which I actually love. Um, so quickly, when we were recording uh, recently, Issa had to do a little on-the-fly parenting in front of me, and we were on Skype and video call, which he always insists on for some reason. I don't know why. I think he just loves looking at my beautiful face. Um, but I could tell right away just how he was interacting with his kid, um, how he kind of always approaches matters with calm and cool, collected, rational kind of, yeah, calmness. And I, I was just like, hmm, remember how he interacted there, Maddie. That is, uh, that's something to follow right there. Um, I actually hope he's the same way, you know, calm, cool, and collected uh, in the South London rush hour traffic when he's driving what I can only picture as a big red double-decker bus. Uh, so I'll talk to you both soon, but in the meantime, go listen to Young, Free, and Coupled. And last but certainly not least, uh, Perry and Lindsay Johnson from Hello Life WTF and the Pod Stuff Podcast, who are together fighting bravely against cancer, and they could really use your support. We ask this because they are truly the most supportive people in the podcasting world and are extremely dedicated to their fans. They even apologize for not being able to be more active on Facebook groups or getting an episode out, um, which is sad but also hilarious and endearing and it just goes to show you um how dedicated they are to everybody who they've met through their podcast um and it's kind of frightening like when they apologize for not getting an episode out it seems like they really mean it and they're really sorry so um please go find the gofundme link in the show notes here and go listen to their shows. The Pod Stuff Podcast is an interview-based podcast review show where Lindsay and Perry's personalities really shine through. It's really funny. It's really entertaining. It's more than just a simple interview-based show. I highly recommend the Pod Stuff Podcast. The other podcast they do is Hello Life WTF. Um, this is the only relationship-based podcast that I always listen to. Part of that is because they do not give advice and they um, often don't even want you to follow their examples. It's more of a, uh, hey, learn from our mistakes kind of feel. Uh, but laugh at yourself and each other all the way along. Um, they are two of the, these are two of the many takeaways that I've gotten from their shows. So go listen to them at the Pod Stuff Podcast and Hello Life WTF. If you're able, please consider supporting the GoFundMe. Uh, campaign and we thank you in advance love you guys be strong for each other hashtag hello cancer wtf All to the rhythm of a passion